Welcome to Our Call to Care, the podcast. I remember looking in the mirror and I didn't like what I seen. I seen a depleted version of myself. We're unique. And we're unique in the way that we care for human connection. Something's got to give here. We got to do something and we got to do it now. The very nature of what's become a truly global pandemic makes it easy to forget sometimes that each country, every region, has its own unique context for coronavirus. And Northern Ireland, which is where we are, at least virtually for this week's episode, has seen more than its fair share of troubles in recent history. Rob McAdam is part of the team at Addiction NI. The clue's in the name in terms of what they do. And we were able to help them out recently with some phones and airtime. Rob's one of those people who weaves his passion and care like a thread into pretty much everything he says. And this weekend, Rob was good enough to talk to me about what really matters to him, to share what the challenges and learnings are for him and his colleagues in their bit of the world, and as you'll hear later, to speak really personally too about his own rather incredible journey to where he is now. COVID-19 hit us uh, in March uh, and it was a new phenomenon. It was the unknown. It Mm. was an area of trying to adapt, but also not losing the heart and soul of the work in which you do. Um, So so one of the challenges immediately was that we needed to close down face-to-face contact uh, Mm. with our clients. And that's equally as challenging to our clients as what it is to ourselves. Because by the very nature of the work we do, mm. um, we we very often become the the sometimes the only support in people's lives yeah. at, at, at that time. Um, so when you cut that off, uh, and you know, I can only speak for me, uh, but but very often putting your arm around somebody who's struggling, yeah. um, uh, 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 and having that human connection and that human touch. Um, for that to be taken away, that was that was extremely difficult for me to try and deal with. I mean, it's just to pick you up on that little phrase there to to put my arm around them. I mean, there it is, you know, right right straight away. There's a physical connection, isn't there, which you know can demonstrate friendship. It can demonstrate being on your side. It's it's li- it's literally support. It's contact, isn't it? So, by the very nature of what we do, um, uh, 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 and that is supporting people to change their lives. That is supporting people on a journey of recovery. Mm. That is supporting people through every aspect of that. Um, but but we are social animals uh, as a people, uh, 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 and human connection is what we strive for and what we live for. Mm. Um, and you know there's nothing I love more than when somebody is struggling to be able to put that arm around them to be able to comfort them to be able to say look things are tough now but you're going to get through this because yeah. we're going to support you through it um, yeah. so I suppose it's it, it's trying to adapt uh, in how you do things uh, and it's never going to be perfect 
in relation to technology. Technology is wonderful, it is great, it is fantastic, provides connectivity, provides all of those different key elements in terms of maintaining support and recovery. There's something about another human being being able to put their hand around someone and say, let me walk with you through this. Um, let me walk alongside you uh, as you travel this journey. To walk alongside you as you travel on this journey. That's an adult-to-adult definition of care. What percentage of your time uh, with the people that you're supporting would, in normal times, be face-to-face? Is it it all? 100%. Right. Okay. Well, (laughs) okay. So you went from 100% to 0% overnight. Well, what we actually found, believe it or not, Karen, uh, was that our engagement rate was really, really good at the was beginning it? of COVID. So people wanted to talk more because yeah. they were locked down. They, they they were at home. They were alone, many of them. And then for many of them, it was the only conversation they were getting that day. Um, so they actually wanted to talk more. And you've seen the, the, the conversations lasting longer and you've seen the engagement rising. So, you know, that that's one of the positives in that I think that what we have to do post-COVID is that we have to continually offer that type of connection with people as yeah. well because actually there's many of our people who uh, have severe anxiety, don't like to leave the home. It's almost, you know, it's a real challenge for them going out of the house uh, mm-hmm. and coming to a building. Mm-hmm. Um, and we found particularly with those people that this has been a fantastic experience for them to be able to have that counselling and that therapeutic yeah. intervention via technology has really alleviated a lot of that concern. And we have to think very, very smartly uh, about how we do things going forward and how we really embrace technology uh, to make a difference in people's lives. So what difference did our phones make? Where and who did they go to? How did they help? So I think first thing first is uh, on behalf of Addiction and I um, and on behalf of the clients who uh, have been connected as a result of the, the, the kindness and generosity shown by Tesco, we want to extend a huge thanks to them uh, for, for their support uh, and we hope to continue to work with them post-COVID-19 to develop uh, a real working partnership here in Northern Ireland with, with Tesco and Mobile. So our absolute thanks and gratitude uh, to all the team there. Uh, just to give them a kind of uh, a context of how that's actually helped uh, on the ground. These phones went to some of the most marginalised and vulnerable people within our society and I cannot overestimate that enough. These are people who support networks are very, very low uh, and in some cases non-existent, um, where the only support they have is agencies and support services like ourselves. So they were ultimately disconnected. These phones went right across uh, this city. Uh, they went right across Belfast and there is uh, a few of them going down into the northwest, uh, okay. down into Oma and the, the Derry region uh, as well. How do they show up when you first meet people? They come from every single section of our society, uh, from those who live within socioeconomically deprived communities mm-hmm. to those who uh, are affluent uh, and you know asset rich and all of that. We can we can okay. use that term. So it's non discriminatory. Addiction doesn't discriminate on the basis of class, wealth, or any other matter for that fact. Rob and his team have a really clear sense of who they are and what they do. We're a harm reduction charity. 
Yeah, tell me more about that. What does that mean? Harm reduction is about, it does what it says in the tin, you know, in terms of reducing the level of harm that somebody is doing to themselves. What we don't do as practitioners or as therapists is tell somebody what they should do, okay? That's not for us to patronise people or condescend people. It's up to us to say to someone, where is it that you want to go? Where is it that you want to get to? And then for us to formulate a plan to help support that person get to that point. Uh, so if we have somebody who is drinking, uh, let's say, for instance, I'm using alcohol only here. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm, I'll, I'll talk about another substance in just a second. But if we have somebody who is, let's say, drinking a liter bottle of vodka per day, and we get them to the point as to where they're maybe having three beers, four beers, yeah. rather than that, that's a harm reduction. That's yeah. a significant reduction in the level of harm that they're doing to themselves yeah um when we get somebody from injecting heroin to smoking heroin that's a harm reduction because wow. the the potential uh, of uh, contamination with needles or, or of infectious diseases um of overdose from from injecting as well is quite high whereas the level and smoking doesn't sit with the same parameters as the level of injection so you know, we 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 recognise all those things, and we're evidence based. We didn't come up with this. This isn't a you know us being airy furry uh, mm-hmm. with, with all of this. This is evidence based research that has been done over a sustained period of time that shows that this practice works best. So rather than trying to just get people to just go, okay, nothing ever again. It's absolute yeah. stop now, and we we build you up from zero. Yeah. You're, you're having a very real conversation that, that acknowledges that this is going to be a hell of a journey and you're going to try and help them through it step by step, but yeah. but not like the 12-step programme, though, which is... Nope. <laughs> right, right. Uh, now, we, we, what we do find uh, is that people come in from a harm reduction perspective and they do want to get... They want to reduce... They don't want to stop their drinking. Let's say, again, I'm using alcohol, um, but, but they maybe don't want to stop drinking. They want to reduce it. Yeah. And in actual fact, once they've they, they've started on their journey and they started working therapeutically with one of the counselling team or they've started working with one of the practitioners, yeah. they find a few months down the line, do you know what, actually, I want to stop this. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and there's a realisation. But that's because we don't tell people. Who, who on earth are we to tell somebody as to where they should be in their life? Uh, that, that, that's not what we do. Um, we, we, we will work with somebody to help them get to the point as to where they want to be. And that's about setting realistic targets and goals yeah. uh, with those individuals uh, and having that reward once each milestone has been met with them as well. You know, So it, it works, it's evidence-based. Sure. I suppose, and you'll have heard people say things like this before, I'm sure, The that with alcohol, which is, let's face it, a drug that is tolerated and accepted uh, mm. in social circles I can I can really easily see how going from a litre of vodka a day to three or four beers is big progress mm-hmm. just as an outsider I mean I, I do have experience of someone really close to me who, who's been through uh, a severe bout of addiction mm-hmm. but not having done it myself there's still a bit of me when you talk about heroin going mm-hmm. from injection to smoking mm-hmm. my brain does something and kind of goes man shouldn't you just be getting them off it <laughs> right off it but Look, so tell me the, more about what the thinking is behind that well here, here's the thing right uh, and i want to say this that 
there's nothing I'd love more than than there to never be a need for us to exist as an organisation. I'd love to talk myself out of a job, but you know, I I would love us not to need to exist, uh, and that's that's the, that's an ideal world. Mm. Um, the reality is we don't live in an ideal world, uh, and when we look at Northern Ireland in particular, and we look at our mental health uh, problems, and we look at some of the highest suicide rates in Europe. Um, within the, this part of Northern Ireland, we look really? at the lack of investment. Yeah, um, we we look at the lack. We, we let, let me just give you this because this is this is hard hitting when mm. I tell this to people. We had the Northern Ireland conflict here, which gone on for over thirty years mm-hmm. uh, and ended with the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in nineteen ninety eight. I can tell you uh, as an absolute fact, a matter of statistic, uh, that there's been more people has taken their own lives here in the last 20 years than were killed during the Northern Ireland conflict. Now that's over three and a half thousand people who have taken their own lives. Um, uh, you know, so, so when we look at that and not the legacy of, of our troubles and the impact that has on addiction as well in terms of people trying to deal with the trauma of the troubles, uh, and Siobhan O'Neill, Professor Siobhan O'Neill, has written a very good piece uh, on the impact and legacy of the troubles in relation to mental health. Um, so, so that has a huge impact. But come back to your point. Mm. If we walked into one of the hardest to reach category group of people uh, in terms of drug use, um, uh, and we told them, well, listen, come on on this wee journey with me. Uh, and what we're going to do is we're going to, you're going to stop using heroin. Mm-hmm. They would run a mile. They would run an absolute mile. Yeah. So it's about safer practice again. It's not about us enforcing on people uh, as to what what is acceptable, what's not acceptable. Yeah. It's about us being current. It's about us saying, listen, we know you're doing this, but we want you to do it safer if mm-hmm. you can. Mm-hmm. And here, here's how to do it safer. It's about educating them. All right. And people think that people who work particularly with uh, injecting drug users, when they talk about a harm reduction view, the very much the response at times can be the response that you get um, around, you know, not, not being able to understand that uh, and not being able to, I suppose, wanting that that position of let, let's it's yeah. all or nothing. You know, yeah, it's either yeah. you don't do it or you do do it. Mm. Um, the the evidence very much tells us that that you know that that, that doesn't work and that the harm reduction approach does work. Um, yeah. uh, and that's as professionals what we work on. We work on an evidence based approach. And and how do you wish that people saw the world of addiction differently? I suppose it would be to change the 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 stigma within our society around addiction. I suppose for me, one of the biggest things uh, is the hidden harm. Uh, it's the children uh, with parents at home who are abusing alcohol, um, yeah. who the parent, you know, the, the the parents feel unable to come forward because of the stigma attached to having an addiction. Um, I, I suppose it's changing society uh, to say that everybody and anybody can develop an addiction. So what about you, Robert? How did you, what's your journey been to be in this position sure. that you're in now? I, I remember talking about this for the first time around and it was in a BBC radio station being asked mm-hmm. to talk about my personal journey. And I found it really, really challenging and I found it difficult and I contemplated pulling out of it. Um, did you? I did. Yeah. Um, and then I said, how the hell uh, can I 
come out and ask people to break down the stigma, break down the barriers in order for people to come forward for support when I'm not prepared to do it myself. Yeah. Um, so so that, that was the thinking moment uh, for me. And uh, I suppose my journey, just to give you a synopsis of, of how I've arrived to do the work uh, where I'm, what I'm doing today. Um, I suppose for me, uh, as a very young person, I had endured a number of traumas within my life um, right. that, that I won't reopen the book on. I don't think we need to do that other than to sure. say that they were, they were significant traumas, uh, 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 significant childhood traumas as well. Okay. Um, uh, and further traumas therein after. So it was a multiple uh, points of trauma within my life. And I got to the point where uh, I, I had tried to be strong and I tried to fight and I tried to do all of that to, to deal with what was going on in my mind um, to the point where uh, enough was enough for me one day. Right. And I uh, tried to take my own life. Um Subsequently, uh, Carly ended up in a mental health hospital. Okay. Um, uh, but how old were you? How old were you, Robert? I would, I, I would have been eighteen at that time. Right. Um, and I was then put on to a cocktail, is what I describe it as, of medication, um, to where I was sedated for for most of the day. Uh, and when I did wake up, I was looking for my next. Um, drugs to, to go back to sleep and for me it was about blagging things out I'm very quickly coming out of that uh, institution um, I I said you know uh, I need to try and deal with this but I didn't deal with it and that's the honest uh, mm-hmm. uh, that's the honest position so I began to just self-medicate and I was yeah. on to the point where I was being prescribed close to nearly 30 tablets per day um, uh, I was a walking chemist is what I can only be wow. prescribed and I gave up hope on myself um, I didn't have any self care there, there, there was nothing that, that I, I, I didn't want to be here anymore um, and, and that's, that, that's just the simplicity of it and whilst the medication what it did for me uh, was what I like to use the analogy Carl is that it cut the grass but it didn't pull the roots out <laughs> until I actually dealt with everything that was going on um, I wasn't going to be able to pull those roots out and move forward and I remember one day Carl very very clearly and if I close my eyes I can picture it now um, I remember one day uh, being in my own urine uh, being stinking hadn't eaten in days um, was drinking wouldn't have been a big drinker drink was never my thing I wanted to sleep Drink, drink, along with prescription drugs. Any prescription drugs I'd get my hand on, I'd swallow them like Smarties. Wow. Um, and I remember waking up, and I remember going and being absolutely filthy, smelling and everything. Um, mm. And I went into the bathroom, and I, I, I ran the bath. And I remember getting into the bath, and I remember stepping out of the bath, and I remember looking in the mirror, and I didn't like what I seen. I seen a depleted version of myself and I said, you cannot go on like this. And it was that point, I call it the light bulb moment, um, yeah. uh, that the, there was something inside of me and I call it, I, I have a faith card uh, yeah. and I believe it was a greater part. I believe it was, a, uh, if, you know, uh, having a faith, I believe it was a hand of God yeah. um, that, that was put upon me and said, you know, come on. At that stage on that day, I reached out for support, um, wow. and that was the first time 
that I'd actually faced up and was willing to face down all of what was going on inside of me uh, and inside my head. And I worked very, very hard to get to the point whereby uh, it was no longer consuming me. And it took a couple of years, Card, of very intense uh, psychotherapeutic work um, for for me to get the position as to whereby I was able to close the box and all of that, which is why I don't open it, uh, because it's closed and it's away and it's down there totally hear that so you know i closed the box on it and i remember then after working through all of that and i said you know what there's something i have here that i can give back that i can i can be a force for good uh, if it's appropriate to use that term um what was that that you had discovered by going on that very intense journey of your own what did that give you I suppose for me it was a, there was a there was a recognition that there was a system that was broken um, and fire medication and look I'm not GP bison because I don't think that's helpful either but simply fire medication to people because it's cheaper than doing a therapy um, yeah. is not the way forward and I became a very avid campaigner uh, to encourage uh, changes within mental health in Northern Ireland uh, to implement Protect Life strategy and Protect Life Two. And I built up a very robust network uh, of leading political figures, of uh, professionals, etc., etc. And recognising that that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to change society in Northern Ireland whereby it was okay not to be okay. Whereby it was okay to talk. Whereby the stigma did not any longer hold people back from coming to the fore and saying, I don't like who I am anymore. Can you help me change? And not yeah. to just be presented with a weekly script of medication that was never going to deal with, with the issues that people were presenting with. And, yeah. that, and, and I suppose the ultimate aim was when I seen the community around me was suicide after suicide after suicide after suicide. Um, uh, I, I, I said, something's got to give here. We got to do something and we got to do it now. Um, uh, and that's where the the lobbying and a lot of that work came in. But I suppose to take you to the point as to where, where I, I remember going to Dixon and I and um, I, I ultimately became their strategic advisor group chairperson uh, within the right. organisation. And I led that for, for a couple of years um, and then a rule came up. And uh, a number of people said to me, Rob, you should go for that. And uh, I, I reluctantly, I, I did. <laughs> Um, uh, 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 for me having my own autonomy outside of an organisation and being able to I suppose uh, shout when shout it needed to be done um, uh, you know the, that that was something that I absolutely loved doing but I also did want to be part of making uh, a difference so yeah. I, I went for the, the role and I was successful in being appointed and uh, the, the rest is history here we are now here we are Wow, wow, what a story, Rob. There is a kind of irony that you had that moment that you described so brilliantly in that bathroom, looking in the mirror and not liking what you saw enough to say, enough's enough. Mm -hmm. That moment happened uh, totally alone, didn't Mm -hmm. it? It did. And yet here you are being a, a passionate advocate uh 
exponent of support. That that realization moment happened alone, but there was a lot of people working in the background. Uh, there right. was a lot of love okay. for me. Um, I wasn't there alone. Was. There was there was a lot okay. of love for me. There was a lot of there was a lot of care for me. There was you know there, I, I I had a lot of people who really really cared about me, um, and that's a luxury that many people don't have. Um, sadly. So so as well as and I hear what a what a spiritual moment that was for you. So in that sense, I'm sure that must have been yeah. reassuring that you didn't feel completely alone. Yeah. But I guess you that that gave you the courage, did it, to to face that question because you knew there were people out there for you who would be there to support you. Yeah, I I I I think you're absolutely right. I think it was quite a spiritual moment. Uh, when I look back and in, in that moment, it was it sounds it was, like it. it was something. <laughs> it was uh, if we can call it the Damascus moment. You yeah. know, uh, the time to return from the brink. Um, but but uh, I suppose that having all of that infrastructure of support networks, a loving family, a very current family, a loving mother, a loving father. Uh, a lover um, and fa- wider family, um, yeah. who a lot of this I I, I hid from. You know, uh, I yeah. you know I, I remember when I tried to take my own life. It was my mother who found me. Um, uh, and my mother had never taken an antidepressant tablet in her life, um, but but she ended up taking antidepressants for quite some time uh, okay. after that, and she was in a she was in a place, and you know it's funny, a card maybe not funny is the right term, but. Um, yeah. uh, uh, life's funny and how things happen. <laughs> if we can, yeah. we can use that. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember my my I was in I was in my parents' house that that night, um, and I remember my mother would never ever have ever have come into my room. Uh, you know that was my my sanctity. That was my space. Yeah, yeah. But something woke her up in the middle of the night and told Ugh. her to go into my room, and there I was, uh, land. And had she not found me, things would have turned out very differently. But you know, we, we talk about the power, uh, you know, I, I talk about the power of God and, you know, for me, that's that that was an intervention from, from upstairs uh, to wake, wake my mother up in the middle of the night and tell her to go into my room and that's what happened. What, what had you done, Rob? Had, had you overdosed? I'd taken a massive overdose of hmm. um, very powerful, strong drugs and tramadol and uh, I'll not go into the whole cocktail of descriptive sure, sure. of that. But, but, um, but it, it, it might well have got you if, if your mum hadn't come I, up to I, your room. It probably would have, yeah. So instead of uh, probably the worst possible discovery your mum could have had yeah. that next morning, here you are. She must be really proud of you, isn't she? <laughs> is she? Yeah, um, she 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 tells me frequently and often now, you know, about <laughs> um, uh, how, how proud she is. And you know, my 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 dad uh, would never would never have been a a, a very. He would never have been an emotional person, you know. He would never show emotion uh-huh. or anything like that. And yeah. you know, even now, he, 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 my mum reports back, and when something's happened or I've been involved in something, you know, trying to move something forward or or whatever, yeah. and the report gets back to her. Or, you know, you're doing a media interview, and she, he would turn around and he would tell my mum. He never tells me now, but very often, <laughs> um, he would tell him, oh, I'm, "I'm very proud of him," you know, which is lovely. Yeah. To, and when she would phone me back and. So yeah. you're, you're, I wanted to tell you, your your dad was sitting in the kitchen last night. He just says he's so proud of you. And this is what he never bloody told me, you know. Um, but uh, you know, that's <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's yeah. just who he is. But it's it's lovely to yeah, um, it's lovely to have that that, that affection. Well, listen, we've been talking for a long time, and really, really appreciate you, Rob. It's my so, pleasure. Look, thanks for sharing your own 
story which you know is really super powerful and um yeah provides a really a strong context for the work and the beliefs that you have now and i really hear that in a different light so thank you and i hope you're okay with having shared yeah, that with absolutely. me absolutely more than happy rob's path to caring for others is just that his path and I think what I like most about how it seems to have affected his work is how conscious he is that everyone will have their own way of taking on their journey. And that his team's role, their way of supporting people who need help, their call to care, if you like, is to walk with them on that long and winding road towards a better life. Thank you to you, thank you to your team, thank you to everybody. Uh, and yeah, really thanks for your time, Robert. My pleasure, Card. Thanks for listening. <laughs>